Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated 50 years ago in Dallas, Texas, after spending a week in Florida. As he left, uh, he said to me, uh, what is your name again? I told him my name, and he said, I'll keep in touch. But four days later, he was dead. We'll discuss the first book about the history of Florida. It was originally published in 1723 by a gentleman uh, by the name of Andres Gonzalez de Barcia, uh, who was a uh, Spanish historian, colonial historian. The life of environmental activist and writer Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. On November 22, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed as his motorcade drove through Dallas, Texas. President Kennedy spent the week before his death in Florida, first at his family's winter residence in Palm Beach. He then toured the NASA facilities at Cape Canaveral before visiting Tampa and Miami. Four days later, the president was dead. On his last day in Florida, President Kennedy met with historian Michael Gannon. As the first and only Catholic American president, Kennedy was particularly interested in Dr. Gannon's area of expertise, Catholicism in Spanish colonial Florida. When Michael Gannon spoke with President Kennedy on November 18, 1963, he was a priest in St. Augustine, preparing to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the founding of the city in 1565. As he explained to President Kennedy, Gannon was overseeing the expansion and redecorating of the cathedral church and the erection of the Great Cross. There were a number of individual and institutional contributions to the 400th anniversary, and then there was a citywide coordinating committee that oversaw a lot of other activity collectively. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, there were two major products of our efforts. I say I, being a priest historian with the Diocese of St. Augustine at the time. First at the Old Mission, uh, where the first parish mass was celebrated on September 8, 1565, it was decided to build a cross because that was central to the original ceremony where Father Francisco Lopez, the fleet chaplain, soon to be first pastor of the first parish, came ashore ahead of Pedro Menendez Aviles, the leader of the founding expedition, and um, then went forward to meet Menendez holding a cross. And Menendez came on land, knelt, and kissed the cross. And so uh, Archbishop Joseph P. Hurley of the Diocese of St. Augustine thought it best to highlight the church's contribution by the erection of a very large cross. 
and ultimately it was constructed of stainless steel and rose to a height of 208 feet. I think it is still the tallest freestanding cross in the Western Hemisphere. And I think it's very impressive. It, uh, it's stately, it has a wonderful design that was done by an architectural firm in Boston, Massachusetts. It um, can be seen 14 miles out to sea and it's grown among and upon uh, the people who live in this community and has become a symbol of the first mission to the North American natives and the first parish erected by Europeans in this country. Also part of St. Augustine's 400th anniversary was the construction of a contemporary church called the Prince of Peace and a bridge linking the church with the historic mission grounds. Plans were made for a library and research center on the property, but funding was not available. Today, visitors to the mission site can also see the statue of Father Francisco Lopez. That statue was erected in the 1950s. It was executed by a distinguished Yugoslav sculpture, sculptor, Ivan Mestrovich. But it was placed at, in a copse of trees where it did not stand out against a dark background. And um, the plan that the architects in 1965 came forward with was to move it to a site on open ground where the figure of Father Lopez with his arms in the air would stand out against the sky. And now, at long last, the statue has been moved to that space, and you can see the dramatic difference in uh, the figure of Father Lopez as he's seen completely and clearly now against uh, the sky, and directly in front of the cross which stands behind him. As the Spanish began exploring and colonizing Florida, the Reformation movement was underway in Europe. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Henry VIII, and other Reformation leaders were protesting various practices of the Catholic Church and forming Protestant religions. In an effort to maintain its power and influence, the Catholic Church launched the Counter-Reformation. Part of that effort was to send Catholic missionaries around the world, including the New World of Florida. Michael Gannett explains that Spanish imperialism and Catholicism were inextricably linked. The two efforts were coterminous. Uh, everywhere uh, Spain moved politically and econom economically and militarily, the church moved too. Uh, the church was always a, a partner of Spanish expansion. And indeed, some of the great expansion of the church through her mission system uh, preceded the advance of other elements of Spanish society. And uh, you can certainly see that in the interior missions of Florida during the 17th century where um, missions stood out in the wilderness uh, apart from all of the other examples of Spanish colonial existence. And the friars of the Franciscan order lived very lonely lives servicing their people. So the church was in the forefront. If, uh, if, if, if you want to... Uh, uh, select any part of the Spanish cultural presence in Florida and the rest of the Spanish provinces of North America, you would have to say the, the church was in advance of all other institutions. St. Augustine is the site of the first Christian church in what would become the United States. As Michael Gannon points out, St. Augustine is also the site of our country's first school, first hospital, first court of law, first market, and first city plan.
As the Franciscan missionaries tried to convert the Tamuquan Indians who inhabited the region, they discovered that the natives had no written language. A friar named Francisco Pereja developed a phonetic written version of the Tamuquan language, preserving it for us today. Although the Tamuquan people no longer exist, Michael Gannon brings their language to life by reciting the first sentences of the Lord's Prayer. Heka itamile numa hiban tema bisa milanema abak wano leta habema balunu nane mima noho boni habe. A bronze plaque at the mission site in St. Augustine shows the locations of dozens of missions scattered throughout Florida and the southeastern portion of North America. The attempts to convert Florida's indigenous peoples met with varied results. The natives were both welcoming and hostile, depending on the tribe. Uh, when the first missionary to attempt a pacifist approach to the natives he being uh, a Dominican friar who landed at Tampa Bay, uh, the Indians were extremely hostile. They killed him at once. And prior to that, when a number of Franciscan friars and secular priests came with the second expedition of Juan Ponce de Leon to Florida in 1521 on the lower Gulf Coast, they were attacked by the Calusa natives of the site and driven back into the sea. Uh, so it depends. Uh, uh, in uh, most other particulars, uh, the, the native peoples were welcoming, particularly in northern Florida. And that's where the Franciscans had their great successes when they came here in, beginning in 1573 and built missions up the Atlantic coast as far as the border between Georgia and South Carolina. And in the early 17th century, they moved westward across the peninsula and were generally welcome wherever they went and created their greatest number of missions up around the Appalachian country uh, centered on present-day Tallahassee. Those natives had been very hostile to earlier Spanish expeditions in the first half uh, of the 16th century. But in the mission century, they were very accommodating and welcoming to the Franciscan friars. So it, it depends. On, on balance, uh, the natives welcomed uh, the Christian religion and its principal exponents, the Franciscans. The native populations were not the only people who the Spanish missionaries tried to influence. As the British began establishing colonies to the north, the Spanish in Florida tried to encourage runaway slaves to embrace Christianity. Michael Gannon. First of all, during the Spanish period, when a large number of African slaves in 1740 and afterwards escaped from British plantations in the Carolinas, passed through Georgia and down to St. Augustine, where they were given their freedom and where Christianity was preached to them and where they were baptized and began to live normal Christian lives alongside their Spanish and Indian uh, cousins. This was the first Underground Railroad as these African Americans, as you can call them by that date, sought freedom and did so by going to the protection of the Spanish flag and the Christian church. Generally, the slaves from the British plantations were never given the opportunity to learn the Christian religion because it taught the 
It taught the dignity of the individual person, and that's something the slave owners didn't want the slaves to learn about. Michael Gannon told President Kennedy about the extensive history of Catholicism in Florida when they met on November 18, 1963. President Kennedy's Catholicism had been an issue for him during his election campaign, and he gave a national speech on the topic to reassure voters. The Florida Chamber of Commerce arranged the meeting between Michael Gannon and President Kennedy as St. Augustine was preparing for their 400th anniversary celebration. It was hoped by the Chamber of Commerce and by the city fathers in St. Augustine that the president would agree to come down earlier rather than later. Uh, It was uncertain if he would be elected to a second term, so they wanted him to come while president and to build up interest in the city that would help generate tourist traffic Uh, for the 400th year. And so it was arranged for me to meet with the president at MacDill Air Force Base Officers Club, and I did so. Uh, Present were the president and myself, together with the White House photographer, a photographer from the Tampa Tribune, and a Secret Service agent named Gerald Blaine. And the president and I met for 15 minutes or so. I brought him a photographic copy of the oldest written record of American origin, which was a parish register of a matrimonial uh, sacrament, um, the marriage between two Spaniards, a man and a woman, here in the city of St. Augustine, dated in 1594. And uh, he seemed to be very grateful to receive the gift of a photographic copy that was beautifully framed by Victor Rayner, a uh, photographer here in uh, St. Augustine. Well, uh, as he left, uh, he said to me, uh, what is your name again? I told him my name, and he said, I'll keep in touch. But four days later, he was dead. President Kennedy was assassinated 50 years ago this week on November 22, 1963. Michael Gannon became one of Florida's most respected historians teaching at the University of Florida. He has written or edited 10 books, including the recently revised and updated History of Florida, published by University Press of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books about Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, we were just talking about the newly revised and updated History of Florida edited by Michael Gannon, but you have here a History of Florida written in the 18th century. 
Yeah, this is a, a really fascinating book uh, that we have in the collection. Uh, this is a, a Spanish text originally published in 1723 entitled Ensayo Cronológico para, para la Historia General de la Florida, which I just butchered, uh, but it translates to A Chronological History of Florida. And like I said, it was, it was originally published in 1723 um, by a gentleman uh, by the name of Andres González de Barcia. Uh, who was a uh, Spanish historian, colonial historian, uh, and at the time he was the only one who compiled this comprehensive history of not only Florida but uh, of the explorations into the New World, into North America. So this book includes uh, a lot of information about Florida, but it isn't specifically concerned with, uh, with only Florida. So they talk about uh, Spanish expeditions into uh, uh, the West Coast and, and up along the, the eastern seaboard, and even into to Mexico and parts of, uh, of South America. Um, but what's interesting about this book is that you know, it was published at a time uh, when Spain was still sort of uh, trying to solidify its, its claims in the New World. So, so you have to think about, you know, the early 18th century and um, the New World was sort of in flux. You know, there were a lot of other powers, uh, European powers coming into the New World, including France and, and Britain at that time was um, uh, building up its colonies. So uh, Barcia published this book as, as a way to, uh, although he doesn't expressly state that, he was trying to... Um, uh, to to reassert this this claim of Sp of control Spanish control over most of the continental United States. Now, this 1723 history of Florida was originally written in Spanish, as you said, but you also have a uh, an English translation here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so it was originally published in 1723. Uh, a second edition came out uh, in 1829. Uh, but after that, there were never any English translations done. So unless you could uh, comprehend this this very archaic style of of, of Spanish, um, you, you had to rely on on uh, just some footnotes, you know, from other uh, translations. But in the early uh, 1950s, the St. Augustine Historical Society uh, decided to translate uh, translate the entire book. Um, and originally, they were going to just translate um, sections of the book that dealt specifically with St. Augustine. Um, but because this was such a a rich resource of information, they decided to uh, go ahead and, and, and translate the entire book. Now, with that being said, uh, this book is over 400 pages long, and, and again, it's, it's very cumbersome to get through. Not only um, the, the language used, but um, even the translated version is um, a little bit difficult to read. It's, it's not an easy read. Um, um, and, and the book itself is broken up into, uh, not into chapters, uh, but it's broken up into decades. Uh, so each um, sort of, uh, each chapter, if you will, is, is uh, a 10-year period, starting with 1512, going all the way up to 1722. And there's a lot of very dense information um, and a lot of uh, um, sort of uh, po uh, poetic license used a little bit, you know. So it's, it's more of a, 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 um, a piece of literature, you know, 18th century literature, than it is sort of a contemporary um, historic survey of Florida history. Now, it looks like the publisher went to great lengths to not only translate the text, but to also retain the intricate artwork at the beginning of chapters and the, the fonts as well. That's right. The The book is um, uh, it's, it's almost a direct facsimile. Of course, there are some introductions, uh, newer introductions added, um, uh, actually an introduction written by uh, the famous historian uh, Herbert E. Bolton. Um, 
but yeah, it's printed in the exact same size, and they did. They went to great lengths to reproduce the uh, uh, the fonts, the the color, and a lot of the illustrations. So the beginnings of uh, of these um, uh, these chapters have these really elaborate drawings. Um, there are actually these uh, fold out uh, pedigree lists, which are really interesting. Uh, there's one in the in the front of the book that I'll, I'll pull out now. Um, that actually chronicles uh, Pedro Menendez de Aviles, the, the founder of St. Augustine. Uh, it's, a, it's a pedigree list that um, shows his, his lineage going back to, to Spain and sort of traces his, his royal uh, uh, lineage and some of his um, family's history, which is really interesting. So, uh, like I said, it's, it's a great source, not necessarily for a, a contemporary study of, of um, early colonial Spanish history, uh, but as a study of... of um, where Spain was in the early 18th century in 1722. Great, Ben. Thanks a lot. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Jack Davis is author of the comprehensive biography and Everglades Providence, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and the Environmental Century. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. Before she published her book, the prevailing belief about the Everglades, the popular belief was that they were this, this swamp, this, this uh, worthless wasteland that would only be beneficial to you know, civilization if it were drained and converted into some sort of uh, productive commodity, such as farmland. But Douglas corrected that idea with her book by saying, no, 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 this is a vibrant, living river. That was Dr. Jack Davis, professor of history at the University of Florida. He was speaking to us about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Here, Dr. Davis tells us who Douglas was. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was a writer and uh, an environmentalist who lived in Florida from 1915 to 1998 when she died. She died at age 108. She was born in Minnesota, raised in, in New England, and moved to Florida when she was 25 years old. Began writing for the Miami Herald, a newspaper for which her father was uh, the founding editor, and spent uh, uh, several years in newspaper journalism, a couple of decades writing short fiction for magazines, mainly the Saturday Evening Post. And then in 1947, published her first major book, which is now a classic, a book that's never been out of print, The Everglades River of Grass. And in 1969, she founded an environmental organization at age 79, uh, Friends of the Everglades, uh, which still exists. And she remained president of that organization until age 100 when she finally retired. And that organization and devoted to... The, the protection of the cleanup, the repair, which was her word, and protection of the Everglades. I spoke to Dr. Davis about where his interest in Douglas and the Everglades came from. I grew up in Florida, and so I was familiar with Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and I spent time yeah, camping and hiking and canoeing in the Everglades, still, and I still do those things. I literally first read Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's The Everglades River of Grass while lying on my back in a tent in the Everglades. And I found it a fascinating book. Um, and I, you know, eventually read her autobiography and found her a fascinating woman and had 
always wanted to write an environmental history of the Everglades in 1998, uh, the year that Douglas died. I was wrapping up my, my first book and searching around for a uh, new book project and thought that perhaps the biography of Marjorie Stillman Douglas would be uh, an interesting route to take. And it would also obviously be a, a project that would uh, take me back to the Everglades. And, uh, and indeed, Marjorie Stillman Douglas turned out to be a fascinating biographical figure, and, uh, and, the, and the Everglades obviously a very fascinating place. Dr. Davis tells us about what new ideas about the environment and the Everglades Douglas discovered in her now classic book, River of Grass. Uh, the, the water is not stagnant within the Everglades. It actually flows, and this is uh, an amazing biologically diverse wetland, unlike any other wetland in, in the world. This is this great wetland, and its real importance to civilization was not in this rich muck soil beneath the water that should be exposed and then converted into farmland, but in fact it was an ecological system that had many benefits for civilization. Uh, it moderated the climate in, in, in South Florida. If you destroyed the Everglades, uh, you would destroy that moderating force. It checked urban sprawl. If you destroyed the Everglades, then you opened up the rest of South Florida to population sprawl. Uh, and it recharged, and eventually this was her message as an environmental activist, it recharged the Biscayne Aquifer, which is the, uh, the principal freshwater source for uh, people and wildlife in South Florida. Here, Dr. Davis tells us that Douglas not only was interested in bringing to light the history of the environment, but also the people who inhabited the lands, specifically the native peoples of Florida. Douglas, as a both a fiction and nonfiction writer, was one who was uh, wrote as a social critic, and she, in her book *The Everglades River Grass*, is distinguished by how much space it actually devotes to the natural environment. It also devotes a considerable amount of space uh, to the history of of indigenous people in Florida, and and in many ways, this that alone makes that book remarkable because she wrote about the the Glades people, and and then and then of course the Seminoles and Miccosukees in in such a way with with an accessibility to a general readership for a general readership. Uh, that was unprecedented. She did not, as the, as the standard was in those days, she did not treat uh, Native peoples or, or Indians as either, you know, bronze noble people or as, you know, savage uh, denizens of the, of the savage wilderness. She treated them as, in fact, uh, it, with, with the kind of respect she would treat any historical uh, figures. And and she uh, saw them as, as active participants uh, of, of history. Here, Dr. Davis explains that her impact can be found in exhibits throughout Florida. Now, it's interesting. If you go to the, the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida, there's a permanent exhibit on the, on the people of the, you know, the indigenous people of the Everglades. And, you know, here's a public history exhibit but what is in that exhibit is 
all in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's 1947 book, The Everglades River and Grass. She even talks about how European diseases had an impact on these people. Very few people were talking about the impact of European diseases uh, on Native peoples of the Americas until the 1970s. And Douglas is talking about it in the 1940s. And, uh, and, and these are real people who had a real contribution to, to history, and, but who also had lessons to, to, to teach us. That was Dr. Jack Davis, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Keep in touch every day on our Facebook page at Florida Historical Society and visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.